Life is not measured by the number of breaths that you take. It's measured by the number of times your breath is taken away. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast with a new intro, a new vibe, but the same corny jokes. That's right, y'all. Today is the start of season two of the Raw Safari podcast. Now in HD. No, wait, it's a podcast. That's not a thing. See? Same show. Y'all, I mentioned it in the bonus episode. I mentioned it in last week's season finale, and I'm going to say it one more time. Season two is here and it is going to be off the hook. Do people still say off the hook? I hope so. Anyway, we have a lot of really fun, cool stuff coming down the line. I detailed a bunch of it in the bonus episode when I introduced season two. So if you haven't listened to that yet, go ahead. But I will tell you there are a couple of other things that I'm going to be doing. You're going to see some slight changes that I didn't even mention in there because, well, frankly, I hadn't thought of them yet. The biggest one is going to be you're really going to want to make sure that you are following along on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Ross Safari. Not only will I continue to do my daily zoo picks, but for every interview episode when I do an interview in person, I'm also going to do an additional post rather than stories that pertains to the episode. That means that for those of you that don't listen on the first day, and I know that is a lot of you, you'll be able to go back in my timeline and find pictures that relate directly to the episode. I think that's going to make it a cooler experience for everyone and um, just get you some cool pics and, and photos and even video of the zoo trips that I'm taking and the amazing stuff that's happening there. Also, I am completely revamping how I do my Patreon. For those of you who don't know, Patreon is the way that you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis. For anywhere from $3 a month to $20 a month, you can become a patron and support the work that I am doing here by going to patreon.com slash rossafari. And I promise you, if you do this, there's going to be some really cool bonuses that you get. Uh, you're going to have the chance to suggest some questions for some of my future interviews. You're going to know what shows are coming in advance and, and what you're going to be hearing and you're going to get additional bonus photos from a lot of my trips. But maybe the coolest thing is many of my interviews will also have additional patron-only bonus content. Now, I've talked about doing this in the past and even set it up for a couple of the episodes, but um, I'm being really intentional about it this time. After each interview, I actually hit stop and then hit record again and get additional content just for my patrons. And uh, it's been really fun so far. And there are some really cool things that you're going to be missing out on if you're not a patron, although you'll still be able to get your regular show for free, unaffected every week, twice every week with Zoo News. So yeah, if you're interested in adding some extra oomph to your Rossafarian fanness, the way to do that is by going to patreon.com slash Rossafari. But okay, enough about all of that. Here's a question for you. 
What do Christina Aguilera, Shaquille O'Neal, and John Rossi have in common? Well, other than the fact that we look like we could be siblings, we have all hung out with Ron McGill, who is today's guest. You see, Ron is a really special guy. He is the communications director and goodwill ambassador at Zoo Miami, where he has worked for 41 years. Along with working there, he also has done a lot of his own conservation work and even set up an incredible foundation that he is going to talk to you about. Ron is an amazing storyteller, and he is an entertainer as well as an educator. He has been on numerous television shows. He has six Emmys, and he currently makes a weekly appearance every Tuesday on the Dan LeBetard with Stu Gotts podcast. For those that don't know, this is an incredibly popular sports podcast. And you may be wondering, why am I telling you about a sports podcast when we are in the zoo world here? But, uh... Ron uses it in an amazing way, and I'm going to let him tell you all about that. The truth is, I wish I could have let Ron tell you about everything. His life is incredible, and he touches on stories in this interview that could be an entire interview just in one little story. I could have talked to Ron for days. We got him for an hour, though, and, uh, you know, I made the most of it. If this episode doesn't give you hope and a lot of laughs, then I don't know what possibly could. I am so proud to be bringing this to you all. One quick note about this episode. Uh, there is some adult language in it. I think only maybe one naughty word for most of it. But then uh, I got to tell y'all, there is a story towards the end that is very adult. It, it has to be. There was no way to tell it without making it adult, and there was no way I was leaving this story out of the podcast. So I do put a warning in. I do a little interrupting John, letting you know that the adult thing is coming. But if you are listening with your kids, you may want to listen to that part first and decide uh, if you want them to hear it. It's around the 54-minute mark, and it is a doozy. But again, may not be the best idea for younger kids that listen. So now we're going to go away for a quick word from our sponsors, and then... We'll get to the interview. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamers Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right, so... Without further ado, here is Ron McGill, communications director, goodwill ambassador, conservation storyteller, and all-around awesome human. All right, 
So why don't we start off with uh, you telling me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. Sure. I'm Ron McGill. We're at Zoo Miami, and I'm the communications director here now, Goodwill Ambassador. I've been here for 41 years. That's just amazing to me. And um, you're, you're quite quite well known in the community and, and appreciated, uh, and I'm excited to get into this a little bit with it's you. just I've been around a long time. I don't know about being well known, but <laughs> it's, it's age kind of grows on people, I guess, after a while. Fair, fair. <laughs> um, so let's start off. I'm I'm really curious to hear about like your early life and career. What got you interested in zooing? Well, you know, I was born and raised in New York City in a small apartment. My father was a Cuban immigrant. My mother is the daughter of a Colombian immigrant and a German immigrant. Um, and the only exposure I had to any kind of exotic animals was when my mom would take me to the Bronx Zoo. And I remember going to the Bronx Zoo and something happened to me. Now, now don't get me wrong. I was, you know... I, when I talk to kids today, I tell them how lucky they are because you got this plethora of programming. You've got the Discovery Networks, National Geographic Channel, you know, Animal Planet. When I was a kid, there was one show. It was on at 7.30 on Sunday night. It was called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And I would watch that show, and that was like church for me, man. I would go in there, and I would just, wow, man. And all I had was a little 12-inch black and white television set growing up. <laughs> wow. That's all we had, see? So I'd watch that and say, my gosh, I want to know what that's like. But it wasn't until I got to the zoo and I saw these animals face-to-face in color, real life, that it planted a seed in me, a seed that just continued to grow into a passion to work with wildlife. Um, so I understood that you know, my, my ultimate dream was to be able to travel to Africa, to travel to the Amazon, travel to the Arctic, to do these things, to see these animals in real life, but that the greatest stepping stone for that would be working in a zoo, at least to get that contact with these animals to work with that. So that was always a dream of mine, to work with animals. Um, you know, again, going to the zoo. I even spent a lot of time at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, which is to me one of the greatest in the world. Absolutely. And I could spend entire days in there just going through all these animals. And it was great to see them, but I wanted to see them alive. Yeah, I've always struggled with that. I'm such an animal lover, and I think there it's so important seeing the taxidermied species Absolutely. and everything, and the science behind it is is great and is sound. Mm, but it always kind of makes me sad too. I love seeing the natural behaviors and movement and you know life. Absolutely, you know. But it, it is again, it's it's part of that fertilization, so to speak, of the of the love I had for wildlife to be able to see it that way um, and understanding. You know, people. You know, like Teddy Roosevelt, these are all some of the greatest conservationists in the world. They actually were hunters that brought these animals and, and used kind of those taxidermied species as ambassadors to say, we've got to protect their natural home. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I, I think that's so cool. And I think that's the same purpose now that a lot of zoos serve. Because, you know, to be clear, zoos did not always start off Absolutely as not. good things. Absolutely yeah. not. I mean, I, and you know, even when I started 41 years ago, zoos were not nearly what they are today. And, and I'd like to think it's, you know, uh, people in my generation who said, listen, we've got to change this. You know, we can no longer have this horrible pacing animal in a concrete slab with bars all around it uh, as an exhibit of the animal. You know, zoos today, what we try to do is we try to, at least good accredited zoos, they try to exhibit an environment. Because at the end of the day, if we don't save the habitat that these animals live in, there's no way that we're going to save the animals. Uh, and that's a, a thing that zoos uh, are working on. They still need to improve on it, and we are constantly improving on it. Um, but that is the direction in which zoo, good zoos go to. Right. Good zoos being the, the key there. And, and we talk about that a lot on the podcast. Right. But yeah, big fan of accreditation and um, all that stuff. Um, so I'm... 
I'm so blown away. I haven't gotten to go through a lot of Zoo Miami yet. Uh, I got here. It's been raining. Got, yeah. got, spent Welcome to long. tropical, subtropical yeah, right? Florida. Spent too long with tree kangaroos. No one is surprised <laughs> by this. But um, I did notice the the building, the conservation station. I, conservation Action Center. Yes, yes. The Conservation Action Center. I almost teared up when I was in there. Um, what? Uh, t- talk to my listeners about that. Tell well, them you know, what basically what we wanted to do, we wanted to give our guests an opportunity to go in look at things and be inspired to say what they can do themselves to help with conservation. You know, there's that old saying that conservation is, you know, think locally, act globally. Well, you got to act locally too, especially here in South Florida. We are faced with so many challenges here, uh, invasive species. You know, one of the highlights of that Conservation Action Center is this larger-than-life python that you can walk through because the Burmese pythons become the poster child for invasive species here in Florida. People realize how destructive the wrong animal in the wrong place at the wrong time can be to an environment. And, and, and the python's been that. But we have so many other non-native species, a lot of invasive species, whether it be tegu lizards, whether it be plants, whether it be insects, that are not only destructive to the environment, but destructive to our economic engine that is Florida. You know, whether it be tourism, uh, affecting the local fishing, or fishing uh, affecting the, the bird watching, whatever it is. So that exhibit, basically what it tries to do is... It's geared a lot to children and families. I kind of call it, and I, I don't say this in a negative way, I call it kind of Chuck E. Cheese for conservation. <laughs> because <laughs> I you, love that. you can go in there, you know, you got the whack-a-mole that you play to find out how you can whack out these, these threats. You got the, the scoop the poop type thing where you're scooping up into it. You know, so you got all of these kind of games that you play to help you in, get engaged in what you could do for conservation. You can go through that house, you know, that shows you how you can, you know, uh, conserve things by recycling, conserve water, conserve electricity. So these are all, it's an interactive thing. It's not one of these exhibits where you put your hands behind your back and you just look and read. We have learned that people don't like to read a lot anymore. you got to have some type of interaction, uh, you know, emphasized by really good imagery, good graphics, and that gets people engaged. So that's the premise of the Conservation Action Center. Go in and see what you can do every day to make it better for all wildlife. And it is, it is so cool. And uh, I don't know if you read the recent New York Times article. Um, I did. I've put out a whole episode already yeah. disputing it. But I just, I just wish that the author of that article could just walk into that building yeah. and see the money and the time that went into and the effort. And like you said, the new ways that we're finding. Okay, if signage isn't working well enough, although right. – Signage also has inspired almost every keeper I've talked to. It's it's inspired me. You know, right. it, it's good for a, a percentage. But finding new ways to reach new people is such a, a goal of good zoos. And seeing that just, oh, it hit. It no, hit it absolutely home. is. And, you know, you know, we talk about signage reaching people. Unfortunately, most of the signage is reaching people that were preaching to the choir. You know, it's people like you and I who are fascinated about it in the first place. What zoos have to do is we have to think of better ways to engage the person who didn't come here with conservation in their mind at all. But they leave thinking, wow, you know, i got to do this. So it is kind of an education through entertainment premise, um, but doing it in a way that maybe the guest doesn't even realize it. So we need to go through other platforms. We need to have different audiences and engage them in a way that's not just preaching to the choir. Absolutely. I love that. Uh, so let's, let's spin it back to you. So, you know, you're, you're a kid, you're inspired by this show. You get to go to the Bronx zoo, which is an amazing zoo. Well, you know, WCS for me, they are the role model for zoos as far as conservation. Absolutely. Uh, nobody does more in the field in C2 conservation work than WCS. So they 
they deserve the badge to wear as the leader and what zoos should be doing in conservation. So I was very privileged to have to go to that facility. Yes. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm a Philly boy, but I spent a lot of time in New York playing. So I'm a member of the WCS and I'm, yeah, I'm with you. Great. Amazing, <laughs> amazing facilities, amazing behind the scenes work. Um, so, so tell me how you went from inspired by all of that to now 41 years later, we're sitting here and you have accolades galore and all kinds of stuff. Talk me through it. Well, you know, for me, I knew I always wanted to work with animals. I'm not a guy, contrary to where I'm dressed today because I had to do a presentation. If I had to put on a jacket or a, you know, a dress shirt every day, to work, I'd lose my mind. I knew I had to be comfortable. I needed to be able to get outside when I wanted to, and I needed to work with animals. So my, my original premise was I wanted to be a veterinarian. Because, you know, as a kid, you're thinking, okay, I want to help animals. Well, a doctor of animals, that's going to be the greatest helper of animals, right? You're going to cure animals, you're going to save animals. Uh, and I was on that path until I got to the university and I took my first major chemistry class and I realized I got to come up with plan B. <laughs> chemistry was not my forte for whatever reason. The tutors, I said, no, I got to come up with plan B. So I, I figured to myself, listen, I'm going to get into zoology, into wildlife conservation, work in the field and see what I could do there. Um, and every professor I spoke to, every tutor I spoke to said, listen, you got to get experience. You got to get hands-on experience working with animals. I said, well, a zoo would be the greatest thing for me. Um, so I first started, my first job down here in Miami was a job in a place called the Miami Serpentarium. It was an attraction that didn't require any experience okay. because they paid you minimum wage. Okay, they said, well, we're going to pay you nothing, but we're going to give you the opportunity to get that experience. That is so important. I tell that to people all the time now who want to get involved in this career field that, you know, when you're young and you can afford not to make a lot of money, get the experience, even if it means volunteering your time, because that experience is going to be invaluable when you go apply for a job, more so than even your degree in a lot of ways. We're going to have to see what kind of capability you have to actually work around animals. So I started there as a tour guide at the Miami Serpentarium, and I gradually moved my way up to becoming curator of reptiles there. And this is with a gentleman who is considered one of the greatest snake experts in the world. He worked with cobras, all kinds of stuff. And that gave me the opportunity to work with all these animals, crocodiles, Galapagos, tortoises, cobras, rattlesnakes, everything. And I got great experience there. Now, I got to move on because I couldn't continue making minimum wage. I went to the University of Florida, studied zoology, and saw a sign. I grew up actually five miles from here. When, oh, we, wow. moved, when we moved down here to Florida in 1972, I grew up on a five-acre ranch that my Dad built the house, and we raised horses, and I grew up west of here. And I saw a sign go up on the main road here that said, new zoo coming here. I don't know. Oh, that's it. That's like, that's a signal. That's a sign from the heavens. Ron, apply. So I was actually in my senior year at the University of Florida. I applied as a zookeeper at the old Cranon Park Zoo. It was the predecessor to this place. And um, they called me and said, okay, we'll give you the job, but you got to come now, which means I had to leave in my senior year without finishing my degree. Oh, wow. My father... A Cuban immigrant with only about a fourth grade formal education. I told him I'm leaving, I'm going to start as a zookeeper. He looked at me and went, What? He was so profoundly disappointed because his vision of a zookeeper was basically a custodian with a big shovel and a wheelbarrow. Okay. And he said, You're going to leave the University of Florida to go shovel poop? I said, Pop, it's a lot more than that. And that's as the profession was beginning to change, where it became more of a profession, not uh, a blue collar maintenance job. And um, you know what? It turned out to be a good decision. Because I started as a zookeeper, became a lead keeper, became a senior keeper, became an assistant curator, became, you know, now I'm here. And um, I've been here for 41 years, but I feel like I started yesterday. And it's and enabled me to open so many doors. I've traveled around the world many times. I've done wildlife documentaries around the world. Um, I've been successful in starting great conservation programs around the world. And for me now, 
you know, when I tell people, you know, I've been to Africa, I think it's 53 times now. Oh my God. And, 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 and what that enables me to do is it enables me to see animals in the environments that they belong in so that we can do a better job of maintaining them under human care. That, I mean, that's so incredible. That's such an awesome path and, and so, uh, inspirational. What do you, what do you think it is about you? That makes you, when you show up at this first gig, you go from like, you know, bottom of the totem pole to <laughs> one of the top dogs. And then you come here and now, you know, like, how do you persevere? You know, John, I'm going to tell you, my real gut feeling is this. There are people that are a lot smarter and know a lot more about animals um, than I do. Um, having said that, when I started in this field, a lot of people who worked with animals worked with animals because they didn't want to work with people. Uh, today, that's a little different. Today, you know, with the whole thing with YouTube and social media and people doing selfies and all this stuff, people are becoming a little bit more of an extrovert as opposed to the introverts that animal people were many years ago. The big advantage I had is that I told you that I was my, the show that I watched as a little kid growing up was Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. There were two hosts in that show, Marlon Perkins and a gentleman named Jim Fowler. Jim Fowler was the guy I wanted to be. He was the guy that was jumping out of helicopters on top of elk. He was rappelling down mountains and grabbing condors with one arm. I saw him catch a jaguar with a throw net in the Amazon. <laughs> okay, this guy was like unbelievable, and he was just a great storyteller. Make a long story short, I met him about 35 years ago, and he became one of my closest friends, became my mentor. He passed away two years ago, but he became my mentor, and he's the one who told me, Ron, we have got to be good storytellers. If we're not good storytellers, we can't engage people in the things that we're doing. We're not going to be able to save these animals. You know, he taught me about how conservation is more than just getting data and saving animals. Conservation is engaging the community that lives alongside those animals to take ownership of what they're doing. Because you can come up with all the data, all the stats, all the research. If you don't get the people who live alongside those animals to care about those animals the way you do before you leave, when you leave, it's all going to go back to the same. And that's. I think that's what helped me out. I had great mentors who taught me how to be a good storyteller. Again, I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, <laughs> but I think I can tell a story. And it's important to be able to tell those stories, to get people excited. And then with photography, that has really helped me out because it's my greatest tool. You know, as an ambassador for Nikon, a wildlife photographer, it has, it has created an opportunity for me, short of taking someone's hand, and bringing them with me to stand in the Maasai Mara, to see a million animals, you know, migrating in the Maasai Mara, to show them the images and to be able to tell the stories, put a soundtrack to those images. That's the next best thing. Because unfortunately, in today's world, all I'm seeing today is, you know, people taking their phone and swiping. What's the next picture? What's the, Nobody's really reading all the way. Nobody's, that's a big word. But many people, especially today's youth, it's like instant gratification. Picture, picture, subtitle, picture, subtitle, next. Mm -hmm. And I've, and I've learned, I think, a way to do that, you know, and, and, and I've learned to connect people. Sometimes what we do also, John, is we as conservationists, zoologists, we take ourselves a little too seriously. And we've got to learn to lighten up a little bit. And I'll give you a classic example of that, where I've been able to raise a lot of money for conservation while engaging people in something. About 30 years ago, we used to have a lecture series here at the zoo where we bring in these great scientists that would come in, you know, we'd say, look at this guy. He's been living in the Amazon by himself for five years. And look at this paper. He just wrote. It's amazing. Let's fly him up. So people come to listen to him lecture. It's a great idea, right? Okay. So we'll fly the guy up and we did the big thing on our, you know, our advertising, come see Dr. So-and-so talk about this incredible work he's doing with Jaguars in the wild. Get the guy on stage. He starts to talk. 
and you realize why he's been living by himself in the forest for five years. <laughs> and this is not to, you know, to, to, to speak badly of the person. Of he course. did incredible work. He was doing incredible work, getting incredible data, incredible information. But his ability to convey the story, to engage the public, was non-existent. I mean, it was people were just falling asleep because he was going, and we watched, and it took about four breaths a minute, and then it slept for about an hour. And, then, and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, give me some images. Give me something. Okay. So we did that several times, and it just, the, the reputation started to go, well, some of these people just aren't really good speakers, so right. we're not going to go see it anymore. So the director of the zoo came to me and said, Ron, you like to speak to people. Can you come up with something that's going to maybe invigorate this lecture series? I go, sir, I know what the people want to see. I'll do it for you. He goes, what is it? I go, I want to call it sex and the animal. I said, sex with the animals first. <laughs> I had to change the name for obvious reasons. But he goes, what are you talking about? I go, listen, sir, if you come into the zoo on any given day and everybody in the zoo is in front of one exhibit and they're all looking all over each other's shoulders, jumping up and down, I'll tell you what the animals are doing on exhibit. Okay. They're having sex. The bottom line is I tell people all the time, you, know, you and I would not want to be caught dead in an adult bookstore because we'll get labeled. We'll get stereotyped, right? But if you're at a zoo, at a family institution, and something's going on in the exhibit that you find interesting, and you know very well what it is, you can look at it, and nobody's going to label you because you came to a family institution. It's the <laughs> zoo's fault that those animals don't have any more privacy to their mind. So as a photographer, I started photographing animals having sex. I started photographing all kinds of courtship and mating rituals of different animals because it's fascinating. Right, yeah. And there are so many parallels to be drawn with human sexuality. And I, I will even go further to say that you can understand why, humans, why, why we as humans do certain things that we do that we might think is a little weird because animals do it totally naturally. So I said, that's what I want to come up with. He goes, well, let's see what the board thinks. The board was absolutely no way this is going to happen. This is a family institution. We're not going to be labeled as a perversion, blah, 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 blah. I go, what are you talking about? Because one of the board members saw some of the images, and they're graphic images. I said, listen, I'm not going to do that. This talk is going to be for 21 and older. That's not going to be for kids. Just 21 and older. She goes, this is nothing more than animal pornography, she called it. That's what she called <laughs> oh, it. Animal Lord. pornography. I go, this is an animal breeding in the wild. It's just, I, I, I'm not giving it. Nope. My director, thank goodness, said, you know what? Do it. Let's just do it. The South Florida media came out in droves because they thought I was going to first have sex with an animal on stage. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> And I quickly said, this is called Sex and the Animals. And I started doing the images. <laughs> Make a long story short, it became the most successful presentation ever done in the zoo. I did it every Valentine's Day here for about 25 years. And I finally said, I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore <laughs> because that's going to be on my gravestone. The guy who did Sex and the Animals. And I, 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 I didn't want to have that label anymore. But when I first did it, the newspapers around here also contacted the AZA and said, what do you think about this? And the AZA backed away right away. They go, well, you know, we don't really have a comment on it. No other zoos were doing anything. Well, then that talk got national, international publicity. And then all the zoos started doing a similar type of thing. You know, romance at the zoo, whatever they called it. But it was basically sex and the animals. I kept it with sex and the animals because I told the board, I said, no, we're not changing. They, they wanted me to change. They wanted me to say, can we call it like breeding behavior of ungulates under human care? <laughs> I go, no, that's your problem. We're calling it sex and the animals because the sex is what's going to sell it. Yeah, sex sells. And, and we did it. And it was a huge success. It's still to this day is the single most successful um, presentation ever done at the zoo uh over the years i've raised well over a hundred thousand dollars for conservation just doing that talk so you know that's a classic example of where we have got to learn to lighten up we've got to learn to uh understand who our audience is mm -hmm. and have some fun you know uh, 
this is going to probably rankle some people when I say this, but I, you know, after 41 years, I don't have much of a filter. <laughs> we, we have got to stop worrying about what can only go wrong and start thinking about what can go right. We've got to start having such a, stop having such a thin skin that everybody seems to get offended by something. Mm-hmm. And we've got to look at, listen, you're never going to make everybody happy all of the time, but what is going to be the end result of what we're doing in the grand scheme of things? And I think that's going to help us with our success. Yeah, no, I agree a thousand percent. I um, frequently advocate on the podcast for um, just more transparency and more Absolutely. openness. And Absolutely. just like like you said, like it's goofy. It's, <laughs> there's poop, you know? Exactly. There's a reason we have the poop story, poop on, story. on every episode. And it's not to be gross. It's, <laughs> it's natural. It's natural. And it's hilarious. <laughs> right. And it's the most popular part of the podcast. People, I have guests, or not guests, I have fans reach out to me who don't, like aren't zookeepers or anything right. and literally will say oh my god i just had my raw safari poop story because their dog <laughs> pooped in a funny way or their kid or whatever and i'm like yeah. i'm getting random messages at like 2 p.m that somebody's kid pooped on them hey whatever i'm here for it but um yeah no and you know i think that's so important i remember my freshman year of high school we watched a video about tortoises having sex yeah and the vocalizations sound, exactly yeah. that not i mean i still know what they sound like sure. but i remember the first time that i was at the maryland zoo in baltimore after that and i heard that noise and mm-hmm. i grabbed my girlfriend's hand and said oh my god come on i couldn't even see that there were tortoises there. i was like come here come here you gotta see this you i tell people this. all the time i do the sound so i do the sound when i do the presentation like the galapagos you know that. and i said well now you know that sound so when you hear it you can smile because you know what's going on Exactly. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. I love that attitude. So how did you get into the photography stuff? It was out of necessity. Okay. I was doing a lot of different conservation projects and I was submitting papers for publication and they'd say, listen, we need some pictures to go with this. You know, we're a magazine and people do like to read, but they got to see pictures. Well, I didn't know anything about it. So I called the stock agencies and I said, no, let me, I need a stock photograph of a cheetah doing this or, a, you know, a harpy eagle doing this. And they said, oh yeah, here we got it. I go, how much is that? And they tell me the price. I went, what? I go, I'm a zookeeper. I can't afford that. You know, and I started saying to myself, you know what? I'm just going to buy a camera. And I want to try to teach myself. And I started like buying the photography magazines that had all the little, this was before YouTube and all the stuff that right. we have now, you know, and I just started kind of teaching myself to take pictures. And one of the things that they do in a lot of these photog magazines is they have these contests that you can enter. And I was looking at the contest winners every month, you know, the, the edition of the magazine. I'd say, well, that's not so good. Well, I could do that, you know. So I started submitting and then I started winning some of these contests. And to make a long story short, I won the huge Nikon International Contest, wow. which is a, it's a, it's a very prestigious contest. And the winner gets thousands of dollars in Nikon equipment. And now all of a sudden I had this great equipment that enabled me to really get some incredible photographs. And then Nikon called me and said, you know, we'd like to see your portfolio. To tell you how naive I was, I didn't know what, I said, I don't have any books. I don't have, I, I didn't know what a portfolio was. Right, right. I said, no, just a collection of your images. And I went up, flew up to New York and I showed them the images and said, we'd like to make you an ambassador for us. And from then on, it's just been history. And that's been my greatest storytelling tool, you know, to show these images, to get people, to get them engaged. Um, and it's, it's just really important because we're just a very image-driven society. Right. Uh, so, so photography is something that I cherish, I am very thankful for, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to continue. And the good thing is, you know, even as you get really, really old, I can still do this. Yeah. I can still press the shutter. <laughs> so let's see what happens. That's really cool. Yeah. I um Raw Safari started as a photography page. I am really? not a photographer. I don't even have a DSLR yet. <laughs> but what was happening was I would go to the zoo with friends. Yeah. And we would all have our cameras on our phones. And we would all take the same picture. 
but then mine was properly framed and caught the the moment of the tongue coming out or right. whatever little I don't know for whatever reason the connection that I have with animals led me to be the one getting the better pictures. So then I got this this camera and it has a nice zoom and it's you know it's fine and every single day I post a zoo photo on Instagram. And Good that was you. how this started and I put facts or funny stories or whatever. Um and then the podcast came from that and it's the same thing where I was like great Everyone wants to see animals, so let's go into a medium where there are no photographs or videos able to happen, and then try to make zoos and zookeepers and people interesting, Um, hopefully sharing stories, having some fun. But yeah, this all started with photography, and now I'm getting more and more motivated to like really get into it. Like I want to become a photographer now as opposed to a guy who has a cool zoom and is pretty good at timing (laughs) things, you know? Well, you're a good storyteller. So you're halfway there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I just want, I keep wanting to do more and the more that happens and I'm sure I can tell you're the same way. The more that, that you've done, the more you're just like, okay, now this isn't enough. Now I want to do more. And um, I'm, I'm still figuring out exactly what that looks like for me. You know, you know, for me, John, the, in my entire career, uh, the thing I'm most proud of is that I was able to establish an endowment here. Um, and, you know, I didn't come to work here 41 years ago to work for an attraction. Right. I wanted to work for something that was going to make a difference for animals in the wild. Because I tell people all the time, listen, if the zoo is the last place that we can see the animals that we house here, then I think we as an institution have failed. Our number one priority has got to be to be able to conserve these animals in the wild. We've got to be able to do that. Um uh, and I just wanted to do more, and I felt like, how am I going to justify me working here uh, if I'm just taking care of animals under human care? So a dream that came up in 2014, I said, I'm going to start getting with friends and see if I could raise money to create an endowment, a conservation endowment, that um, the money from that endowment can only be used in in-situ conservation, nice. protecting animals in the wild. Nice. Uh, my peers laughed at me. They said, you know, you know you're a zookeeper. You're not going to be able to raise that kind of money make a long story short, it is the only conservation endowment at the zoo. We have our quarters for conservation program, stuff like that that goes to conservation, but I've been able to raise $2.5 million by myself over the last seven years. Wow. Um, This morning, I wasn't able to speak to you first thing this morning because this morning I was going to present a brand new van to Audubon, Florida for their research in Florida Bay and and Everglades that I was able to buy through the endowment. Um, I've bought vehicles for cheetah research in uh, in the Masai Mara. I've bought vehicles for uh, rescuing and rehabilitating animals in Panama. I've bought radio collars for elephants, radio collars for jaguars, camera traps. This validates what I do here. And this is... This is the type of stuff that validates what zoos do because they have to be able to support that in the wild. Uh, We... We can no longer, you know, spend millions of dollars on exhibits if we're not going to make a profound commitment to protect the animals we choose to put on those exhibits in the wild. You know, people need to realize when it comes to zoos, so many people have this impression that we take animals out of the wild. Right. We don't do that anymore. No. That's not done. The only time it's done is, is to save a particular individual or to save a species, okay? But this mis- misconception that we're ripping animals out of the wild doesn't happen. Uh, and it's awful that people think that but we're somewhat to blame because that's how it started right so we have to work harder in making people understand what we're really doing now uh the things that are happening in the wild because of the work of zoos and quite frankly zoos have to continue to improve on that we can't just say well this is what we do we have to keep on demonstrating more and more how we're doing it better and better
Well, let me ask you something then. Why do you think that more zoos don't focus on that? Because I am constantly, I talk to people all around this country and every time the people are so damn proud of the conservation work that's happening behind the scenes, but they also almost seem to be proud of the fact that it's behind the scenes. Like, John, I'm going to let you in and your listeners get to come in on a little secret here. What? Shout that from the rooftops. You know, I've been fighting that battle uh, for years here um, in the sense that you know, we had we opened a multi-million dollar exhibit, and of course it went over budget like many of these exhibits do. And when it went over budget, one of the first things they pulled away was the conservation money. And I said, why are you pulling the conservation? Why don't you just make the exhibit a little smaller? Well, because if we don't have this major exhibit, nobody's going to come to visit because that's, you know, we need to have that gate to, to fund the things that we need to do. I go, listen, I think you're underestimating the public. I think if the public saw that we still had a pretty decent exhibit, but we took the money and moved it for conservation, it justifies coming to support the exhibit. You see, so that mentality is starting to change. I think that pendulum is starting to change a bit now. The zoos are starting to understand. Uh, some zoos like Wildlife Conservation Society, you know, uh, Columbus, Cincinnati, they do tremendous work uh, in conservation. Zoos now have to follow that lead. They mm-hmm. have to continue to follow that lead. And I think they're going that way. And at the end of the day, they're going to have to go that way, John, because, you know, there's an old saying that says when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And, um, you know, society is not going to tolerate um, millions of dollars in bricks and mortar unless you're making a similar type of investment in protecting them in the wild. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think um, I'm starting to see that more zoos are having a position like director of conservation. Right. I interviewed Lou Parati up at Roger Williams Park mm-hmm. Zoo and and the work that he does there is incredible. Um, but it's still like a fairly rare position at a lot of zoos. And it's I really want to see it popping up. It's going to change. Trust yeah. me, because the AZA now has required it for accreditation. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't actually know. The AZA oh, has now I required like that. that for accreditation. The AZA knows that, listen, you guys, we need to do more conservation work. Um, so they have required now that you have a conservation department in your zoo for future accreditation. So people who might have just gotten accredited, um, they got five years. Okay, you get accredited every five years. Right. And we got to keep it up. So, And people who are up for accreditation, if they don't have it, their accreditation is going to be passed on to a, another vote. So uh, that's a good thing. Uh, That's very, a real good I didn't know that. Yes, That's it is so now a requirement cool. for accreditation that you have a conservation department. Excellent. Very cool. Um, what do you think about um, just in general, like the education departments, zoo camps, all that kind of stuff? Talk to that. God, I think it's so important to engage kids, especially. That's what zoo camp is. I didn't have a zoo camp when I was a kid. I would have died to gone to a zoo Same. camp. Same. You know? So <laughs> to see these kids come out, to have a zoo as your camp. It's just phenomenal. You know, you get kids say, oh, you know what we're going to do for zoo camp today? We're going to go visit the tigers. Let's go feed a giraffe. Let's go do this. There's an old saying that says, in the end, we protect what we love, we love what we understand, and we understand what we're taught. The zoo's role is to teach these kids, especially those opportunities in camps, to plant that seed so that we know when these kids get older, they're going to make the right decision when it comes to conservation. You know, there's another old saying. I'm full of old saying, so you tell me to <laughs> shut up when you get tired. You know, that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Right. You know, when I was growing up, nobody heard about recycling. Uh, you know, I drove the biggest, baddest gas guzzler in the world. I think I got <laughs> negative seven miles to the gallon because it was a hot rod, but it was cool. I bet it okay? was. But you drive a car like that today, you're going to get dirty looks. Mm-hmm. Why? Because mentality's changed. Now, I'm a father, you see, and I may think one way. But there's nothing more important to me than my kids. If it becomes important to my kids, I see the passion of my kids, it's going to become important to me. So I take a little extra to that saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but you can teach the puppies. Mm. And those puppies will teach the old dogs. Uh, and that's our, 
that's, that, that should be a goal of ours, that we're teaching these kids so that this next generation is making the right decisions and they're teaching the older generation. You know, I know kids that go home and tell their parents, you need to recycle that. Just, don't just throw that in the trash, okay? And don't, don't leave the water running when you're washing your hands. What, that's such a way. I've seen kids do that to their right, parents. Right, right. So we are making a difference. It's not maybe happening as quickly as many of us would think or would want, but it is happening. And it shows that we're going in the right direction. I have a lot of faith in this young generation. I've got kids that write me letters every day. And the things they write, the things they do, the initiatives they take on their own. Man, these are great kids. You know, unfortunately, we hear too much about the bad. We don't hear enough about the good. Right. But the good far outweighs the bad. That's awesome. And I'm going to take this moment to brag on my son for a second. There you go. He's six, uh, almost seven, and his name is Miles. And uh, he he has fallen in love with red pandas, which are, you know, my favorite animal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that is why, you know. Um, and we were uh, visiting Elmwood Park Zoo and seeing Slash the red panda and hanging out. And this kid and dad came up. And like you will hear all the time, the kid goes, Oh, that's so cute. We should get one as a pet. And, and you know, obviously panda pets, bad, illegal wildlife trade, bad. Um, but you can understand why people think, that. of course. And also like when a kid thinks that I like to think that maybe they'll go home and be like, you know, Google, I want a red panda as a pet, find red panda network, find out why that's right. bad, be motivated for other things. Like, I don't think it's the worst thing, but my, the dad was just like, yeah, okay, we'll get a red panda. Like did not care, was not engaged. <laughs> and Miles turned to him and was like, uh, excuse me, no red panda pets. They are very endangered. You cannot, and I was like, there you go. Dude, Proud. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I see that over and over in a lot of young people. And to me, it just is a reflection of the fact that the message is getting out there. Um, and, and zoos play a huge role in that. Absolutely. You know, we, we, uh, people need to understand, you know, more people go to zoos than go to all the professional football, baseball, and basketball games in the country combined. Okay. So we, it's have, amazing. we have a huge audience. We just have to do, a better job of engaging that audience on the right message. You know, listen, we're never going to get all the people all the time, but we've got to do a better job of engaging people so they have a message when they leave here. And it's not just, we came here to have a good time, you know, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge we've got to meet up to. We're not perfect, but I think we're working in that direction. And the more we do things like that, the more we see kids making statements like that, the more we know we're headed in that right direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, you're a storyteller. Yeah. Tell me some stories about like your time out in the wild doing conservation stuff. Just pick uh, some goodies. I know you've got well, more you, than a few. People always ask me, you know, what was the, the most single, most amazing wildlife moment of my life? And I'm also always asked, what's my favorite animal? You know, the politically correct answer is, well, the last one I was working with. <laughs> but, you know, in truth, my favorite animal ever since I was a little boy was the harpy eagle. Okay. I'm not necessarily a bird person, but the harpy eagle is the most powerful bird of prey on earth. Uh, and to put it in perspective, you know, the bald eagles are a national bird. A, a big female, bald, females get larger than males. Female bald eagles, probably eight or nine pounds. A big female harpy eagle is about 18 pounds. Okay. 18 pounds is like, Double the size. The, the talons are the size of grizzly bear claws. I'd only seen a harpy eagle in the Museum of Natural History dead. I saw my first live ones in Panama because my wife is of Panamanian descent. I saw them down there. Anyway, make a long story short, I started a huge project where I started the harpy eagle conservation project in Panama. I was the one who got in front of the Panamanian Congress, got them to designate the harpy eagle the national bird of the Republic of Panama, one of the greatest goals I've ever been able to do. I raised over a million dollars to start the biggest harpy eagle center in Panama. I got letters from the president of the United States. I got phone calls from the president of Panama. It was a huge thing for me. As part of that project, I had to study the eagles in the wild, and I worked with the indigenous people. 
and they led me to a nest that was 120 feet up in the middle of the forest. And I used a special uh, crossbow with a fishing reel to throw a line over there. And I climbed up that rope and I climbed into that nest and I sat in the nest with a 10 week old harpy eagle chick. <laughs> and at that point, I was one of only a handful of people in the world who have ever done that. And I'll never forget sitting in that nest, which was probably six feet wide, three feet deep, and looking at this harpy eagle chick. And I'm, you know, I'm six foot six, 230 pounds. Um, and I just started to cry. I mean, I just spontaneously got emotional thinking, I cannot believe I'm here looking at this incredible bird looking at me. So that was a moment that I'll never, ever forget. Um, same thing happened to me in my first trip to Africa when I was out on the Maasai Mara and I went over a ridge and all of a sudden over that ridge was the entire migration. We're talking hundreds of thousands of animals. If you closed your eyes, you could feel the earth moving. Just, and all you heard was, rah, 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 rah. you could smell it. Again, I just spontaneously started to cry. You know, these things, seeing your first polar bear, I remember walking on foot in India and with my guide and he goes, there. And he points to a stand of bamboo and I'm looking at the bamboo and I don't really see anything. And then, you know, you start to focus your eyes and you realize, and I'm looking at the eye of a tiger looking at me through the bamboo. Oh. I'm on foot there. I didn't, I wasn't frightened. Right. It was an adrenaline rush. It was one of those things where, and that tiger looked at us for like 20 seconds and then ran away. But I was on foot in India and I saw my first wild tiger. Oh. My favorite saying in the world, you'll see it here on my desk and on my coffee cups and everything is, Life is not measured by the number of breaths that you take. It's measured by the number of times your breath is taken away. And those breathtaking moments for me have been numerous. Um, these stories of being able, you know, uh, being uh, in the Virunga Mountains, uh, volcanoes, and sitting and having a silverback sit right next to me, a 440-pound gorilla just sitting right next to me, not, not looking, but he's sitting and feeling his head, smelling me, you know, feeling his breath against me, this massive, gentle giant. Um, these are things that leave impressions on you that you never forget. And I just want to be able to, to translate that emotion that I'm feeling to the kids today. Because the sad reality is most of these kids will never get to see that. Right. And that's the importance of zoos. We provide those windows into that world to plant that seed to get these kids to be like me and want to go out and learn more and explore more and protect more. So, you know, those, those wildlife stories go over and above. I mean, I, I was swimming in the Galapagos Islands. Uh, photographing sea turtles when all of a sudden a big shadow comes over me i look it's a killer whale a freaking killer whale is swimming above me and i didn't think at that time oh my god it's going to eat me i looked at it in awe it kind of looked down and just kept on swimming but you know you just never forget those things those are things that you know you take with you to your grave and what i tell people all the time again in today's world when everybody's caught up in you know money and and you know all these material things i said guys make memories Go out, explore the wild. Get away from your computer screen. Get away from your television screen. Get outside, explore the wild, because those are the things that will leave the greatest impressions in your life. That's so amazing. And I mean, yeah, I, I even just in my world, like I'm constantly, people are amazed that I'll drive. I drove three and a half hours to be here on one day off. <laughs> I'm impressed. I don't know. I'm I, impressed. You know, it's, it's, in the rain. It's cool. Yeah, in the rain. <laughs> and it's it's been great already and it's going to stay great. And all, you know, I get to have a lot of cool experiences at zoos because of this podcast and behind the scenes stuff. But here's my question for you. How the hell do you get to start doing this stuff? Can you tell me how I get to do this? How, how my listeners, and I know that they can't follow the exact blueprint. I get that. But what would you tell somebody, because you have someone sitting right across from me right now who is this, who is so fired up to do more and to get out into the wild more. And I want to go to Papua New Guinea and work with tree kangaroos. Yeah. And I want to go to Nepal and volunteer with Red Panda Network and, and you know stuff like that. How do you start getting to do these things? Well, 
what I try to tell most people is that experience is everything. And people say, well, how do I get the experience? You know, and nobody's going to hire me to do these things. And that's where the word volunteer comes in big. And I can't say it enough. You know, when I started, I volunteered doing a lot of things for nothing. While my friends were making their money and going out and going on dates, going to the movies, saving money for a car, I wasn't making anything. But I was building a foundation of experience that opened a lot of doors for me. Not only are you getting the experience, but you meet important people on that journey. And those are the people that can open doors for you. I hate to say this, but the saying is very true. It's not always what you know, it's who you know. Right. When you meet these people who can open doors for you, introduce you to people who can make a, make a big difference for you, that is so much. So I would go out, you know, you talk about Tree Kangaroo, Tree Kangaroo Project in New Guinea. They have volunteer programs out there. Of course, it's going to cost you a fortune to get out there and do it. But if you can manage a way to, to do that, get a scholarship, get a grant, get her something. Getting that experience is going to open so many doors for you. It's going to open so many eyes, put eyes on you. You know, if you're at home, look for a wildlife rehabilitation place. These are places that, you know, are, are scourging for money just to take care of the animals they're rehabilitating for release back in the wild. If you can volunteer there, even if it means just cleaning cages, even if it means every, you know, three hours you got to be bird dropping, feeding a bird. Um, these are things that will not only give you experience, but they'll also tell you if it's something you really want to do. Right. Because I've had people who have a vision of what they think they want to do. And then they get into the nitty gritty of it. And they say, well, you know what? That wasn't really for me. So before you make this tremendous investment in something like that, it's always good to kind of volunteer, you know, to see if it's something you get the behind the scenes. It's not always, you know, rainbows and cotton candy. Um, so, so I try to tell people to do that. Reach out, reach out, listen to podcasts like this, listen to the people being interviewed, see if you could reach out to those people, say, yeah, I heard you on this, you know, what do you recommend, is there something that you have open here, is there, what job openings that you think would relate to something that I like to do, because there's so many different jobs now, it's not just a zookeeper anymore. You know, you have a nutritionist, you have a behavioral specialist, you have the, the vet techs, you know, you have the, there's so many different aspects, there's no longer just the zookeeper. Right, right. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for that. Um, and then you use you use uh, media to to reach out to people a lot, all the time. Um, yeah, talk to me a little bit about that and what you think the influence of media is on on what we're doing. Because you're doing podcasts, you're doing, uh, all, you know, you have like Emmys, right? Like, I have six multiple Emmys. Emmys. Yes, I yeah. thought that's this is amazing. <laughs> that's just amazing. So, so talk to me about all of that. Well, you know, I, I realized at an early age, you know, and it's just it's just common sense using numbers our education department let's say we see 150,000 kids every year come in 200,000 let's say 250,000 kids every year come through our education department okay if i am able to do a half hour television show on our network affiliate here in miami i'm gonna have a million and a half people watching that in a half an hour okay a million and a half people can watch that show in this market so I basically done six times the number of people we have touched by coming to the zoo. I've been able to get them on this market. It told me, listen, Ron, you have a huge platform. And now with social media, it's even different. When I really started, it was just getting with the network affiliates and talking and being a good storyteller. Um, you know, a program that I came up with that has been incredibly successful, and I do it on an annual basis still. I call it the Eco Hero Program. I take these trips, John. I would come back, and I'd speak to schools. I'd show them the images, and I'd look at the faces of those kids, and I saw myself. I saw myself looking at those photographs going, oh, my God, what I wouldn't give to be able to see that in real life. I said, well, maybe I can make that happen for somebody. 
And I came up with the concept, of, let's have an eco-hero contest. Let me team up with the most popular television station in South Florida, the one that's got the highest numbers. And let's have a contest that we run online for a kid who does something great for the environment. Start a butterfly garden, start a recycling program, whatever it is, beach cleanup, whatever it is. And let's have a contest, a little group of judges, and we'll pick out the winner of the eco-hero, the kid who's done the greatest thing positive for the environment. And that kid I'm going to bring to some incredible destination in the world. And the television station from that, a television crew from that station is going to follow me. And we're going to make a half hour documentary from it. And that's how it started. The first one started with a dream. It was called Dreams of Africa. And this young lady, high school junior, I took her to Africa. She'd never been on a plane in her life. Oh, wow. She went to Africa. We did a half hour documentary that the ABC affiliate here ran in prime time, had tremendous numbers, won it. That was my first Emmy Award, okay, doing that first show. And we had over a million viewers. And it opened up so many doors. People, And now people know about the Eco Hero Contest. So now kids are doing projects so that they have something to submit for right. Eco Hero. Because I've taken kids to Alaska, to Africa, to the Galapagos, to Panama. The last one that I just won my last uh, Emmy Award were Antarctica. Okay, so I got a kid that we took to Antarctica, all expenses paid. That was basically for the kid alone. And the kid gets to bring a parent or guardian of his or her choice. Okay, so the two of them together, that was basically a $50,000 prize. And that doesn't even include what it would cost for you to produce the television. And then you're going to be on television so all your friends can see you. Okay. <laughs> Am you're, I too old to yeah. admit? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, th those are things that, you know, that's where we need to think out of the box and understand the media has tremendous power in reaching people that way. And we're not just preaching it to the choir. You know, when you get a television show on prime time on a major network and they're paying for everything, the television station paid to produce everything. The television stage paid for all, you get free commercials because they're of course promoting themselves. So you get these commercials coming up all the time. Hey, join the eco hero contest here with channel 10 and do Miami. You know, it was just a dream come true. And we do it every year now. And, I think it's a no-brainer. I think every zoo in the country should be partnering with their television station and doing the same thing. That's so cool. That is just so amazing. And then uh, you do uh, Dan Lebatard as well. And, Dan Lebatard. And, and Stugatz. Exactly. And <laughs> Stugatz. Let me tell you something about that. That is a classic example of how we got to stop worrying about preaching to the choir. When I was first, Dan, and Dan is a dear friend of mine. It started out as a what we call shits and giggles, you know, about... 10 years ago, they called me up. They were doing ESPN radio at the time. And they said, hey, Ron, we want you to do a, a little shtick on who would win that was the, the uh, March Madness, the NCAA basketball tournament. I said, I want you to figure the brackets out by mascots. In other words, if the mascots were to fight each other, who would win? Nice. Okay. You know, the owls against the rams, the tigers against the lions, whatever. And we did this big shtick, and it just went over really well. I mean, I guess the listeners love this. Oh, we're going to have you on every week. And then it started out every week doing this ESPN thing. To the point where ESPN told Dan, why are we having this animal guy on? We're a sports network. And Dan said, either you have the animal guy or I'm leaving. Wow. Okay. And they said, okay. And then my numbers, you know, they have these ratings. And they figured my spot on that show was the highest rating on the ESPN network at the time. And then ESPN called me to go on to their sports center show. And Dan went nuts. Dan went off on them. He goes, how dare you? You tell me I can't have one. And then you put him on sports center? You know, you're a bunch of hypocrites about it. And to make a long story short, he finally left the ESPN because right. he was tired of the suits. And he's got the podcast now, which is huge. It's bigger than it ever was on ESPN. It's now sponsored by DraftKings. And I do this thing every Tuesday where we talk about sometimes silly stuff. And this is where I was talking before that, you know, we can't take ourselves too seriously. 
make an opportunity out of things. Uh, I'll get questions sometimes. You know, you get some jock comes like, hey, so, so if a, a silverback gorilla fought a lion, who would win? Okay. <laughs> and I'll tell them my opinion is who would win and why. And then I show them, I tell them, you know, you know, the gorilla's an herbivore, he's a strong animal, but he's not a predator. Okay, the lion is designed to kill, he's got claws, he's fast, okay? And I, and I show these differences as to why, how I come to my conclusion. And I get tons and tons of media, of emails from around the world. That podcast is around the world of people saying, I learned so much watching that. And then the really cool thing is now they tell me that I finally got my wife to listen to it because she loves animals and she loves your segment. So it's increased the, the female viewership as opposed to having a lot of male sports jocks. Now we got the female viewership. So it's a classic example. Listen, whatever platform you have, understand your audience, have a little fun. Don't take yourself too seriously, but always try to inject some good information. It's time for interrupting, 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 interrupting John. Hey, y'all, remember back in that intro when I warned you that there was an adult story coming up? Here is said adult story. Let's get to it. Love it so much. And speaking of not taking things too seriously, uh, there, there's a story I want you to tell uh, about, um, well, we were talking about animal sex, and yes. um, it, it's a different species of animal. But uh, go ahead and tell your story about uh, the filming that happened here. Oh, <laughs> Lord have mercy. So, you know, we have a very big zoo. You'll see you go out there in a very big... And on a rainy day, it kind of thins out. But we have a lot of different areas you can go into, different buildings. And in the aviary, we have what's called a round room. It's beautiful. It's got a big aquarium behind it. It's really nice, but it's covered, you know. So one day, I like to go out and kind of rainy. I like to look at animals. tend to sometimes be more active in the rain. It's cooler and things going on. So I'm going through and I'm walking through. And I look at the aviary and I'm going to go into the round room. And as I step into the round room, I don't know how to say this subtly... There is a woman on the bench with her pants down to her ankle, masturbating with a gentleman behind her holding her up and another guy filming it. And I'm like, am I seeing this? <laughs> and they, they, they looked at me and right away they packed up and ran and I tried to run after them, but they got, they got away, okay? They could run really fast. And I went up here to security. I said, guys, I hate to tell you this, but I think someone was just doing some amateur porn in our uh, aviary round room. And they laughed at me. John, they all laughed at me. They go, no, 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 no. That's, nobody's doing that in the round. I go, I'm telling you guys, I was right there. Somebody's doing it. Somebody was doing it in the round room, okay? And they say, impossible. So this is where I get a little embarrassed because I knew that this was going to turn up on one of these porn sites. So I started Googling, like, you know, animals and women. You know, I started getting some really weird stuff. I, I, I went so far as I Googled Beauty and the Beast. I didn't just get Disney. I'll tell you that right now. But finally, after going through it, I forget, I found it. There it was. They had sure, sure as heck they posted it on one of those sites. And I came up to the office. I go, does that look familiar? I'm not talking about the naked girl on a bench. I'm talking about the aquarium behind her. And everybody's like, oh, my God. Oh my, I go, yeah, yeah. And they did it not just there. They had been in other places at the zoo because they put a whole package together. Okay. <laughs> I only caught them in the, in the, in the round room. So uh, yeah, the zoo can be a wild place in more ways than one. <laughs> that is beyond amazing. <sighs> yeah, it was, uh, it was opening to me in many ways. So tell me, what can people, uh, how can people help out with, uh, with your endowment here and uh, everything that you do for conservation? How well, can people help you? Well, I really appreciate that. You know, listen, you can go uh, to the zoo's website and see zoomiami.org and see donate and they'll, 
My endowment can go on, come right up there. It's un- because it's under the umbrella of the zoo. Or you can just go to ronmcgill.org. RonMcGill.org will take you right to the endowment. It's a totally tax-deductible donation. And the promise is that your money will only be spent on animals in the wild. As a matter of fact, what happens is your money is not really actually spent. It goes into the corpus of the endowment. And then the dividends it produces is what's spent. So it's there for in perpetuity. Um, and it's, like I said, the thing I'm most proud of, because I know that if I leave here tomorrow, I get hit by a truck, I am now providing over $100,000 a year directly to conservation work, just myself. You know, it doesn't include the other stuff that Zoo does, but just myself, over $100,000 a year goes... And that's in perpetuity. That's forever. Um, and it, it'll increase because the endowment continues to right. increase. And it's what I'm most proud of. I mean, we have to do more of that, John. Zoos have to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to conservation. You might be the least serious, most serious person I've ever met. <laughs> and I love it so much. Listen, you got to you you, you have fun in life. It's too short. It's too short. Absolutely. Uh, and yet at the same time, you're doing all this amazing stuff. I'm just, I'm incredibly impressed. Well, don't be impressed. I'm surrounded by good people and I had really good mentors. That's awesome. Uh, and then I guess it's time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. So, uh, <laughs> okay. Not that porno wasn't good enough, but uh, <laughs> hit me. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, I do a lot of television appearances, and I was doing a television appearance with a Komodo dragon monitor, big monitor lizard, one that we had raised here since a hatchling. Uh, we use it as an ambassador to talk about it, and I'm doing a live segment holding this Komodo on my lap for CBS, and I'm sitting there talking about the Komodo dragon, and all of a sudden, just I felt his tail get tight in the wreck i said oh here it comes and just it was a blowout i mean all over me i'm wearing this beautiful light tan shirt that is now is all colors of brown and red and white and it's all and what people don't understand is the smell of komodo dragon feces is the most instantaneously gag causing reflex smell you'll ever have in your life i have smelled a lot of horrible things but that was one of those you throwing up a little bit in your mouth and what's worse is the person who's interviewing me is just cracking up, even though she's also gagging from the smell. She tells the camera, pan down, pan down, look at this. And I'm just, it looked like somebody took a feces ball of a foot wide and threw it at me and it splattered all over me. Okay. The smell is horrific. I'm all, and this is live on television. Millions of people are watching this and I'm just smiling. I'm going, well, thank you for that, Maria. I really appreciate you pointing that out. And the tail is just waggling and I'm all over the place. And she's laughing so hard she's crying. And had, she just had to go back to the anchor. She goes, back to you guys. We just can't do anymore. And I'm thinking to myself. And for weeks, people sent me that clip. You know, they just kept sending. But just the part just all over me like that. Live television. This thing just made a whole. And again, for those of you who smelt Komodo dragon feces, you know the pain I was feeling. Okay. Because there's very few things that smell more rancid, more horrific, more horrible than that. Ron, you're not wrong. You're a hell of a storyteller, man. I- <laughs> it was it was it was god awful. It was just awful. Oh man, I bet. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a blast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time, driving three and a half hours in the rain, and coming out here and and taking the time to talk to us about it. Absolutely. <laughs> How cool was that interview? I loved it so much. Ron is such an amazingly inspirational dude. And he's also just got a good heart, you know. As we had talked before and after the interview, I mentioned to him my love of tree kangaroos. 
And after the interview, he went and got a golf cart and drove me to the tree kangaroo exhibit and, uh, you know, let the keepers know that I was a good guy and, and should probably get to hang out with those tree kangaroos. And so I did. I went and met Zena on exhibit and Banyan behind the scenes. And for those of you who have really listened and done some deep dives with me, uh, you've heard me talk about Puzzle, the tree kangaroo that is up at Toronto right now, who is just a, a personal favorite and who I want to meet sometime. Well, Banyan is Puzzle's daddy, and that was just incredible. And yes, 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 I realize that I sound like even a bigger nerd than just, you know, a guy who has a conservation science podcast talking about zoos. But, uh, hey, I don't care. It's amazing. Banyan was amazing. Zaina was amazing. Ron McGill was amazing. I like the word amazing. Anyway, you can check out Zoo Miami on Insta and Facebook at Zoo Miami or ZooMiami.org. And also make sure that you go to RonMcGill.org and make sure that you're following him at Ron McGill Wildlife on Instagram. Now, McGill has two L's at the end, so uh, don't forget that second L. I don't know. Seemed, seemed worth mentioning. Anyway, thank you so much for being here for the start of season two. I cannot wait to bring you a lot of the cool interviews that I have done down in Florida and at some other places. And remember, y'all, season two credits backwards is Steiderk Oit Noseus. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.